Before we could quite believe what was happening to us, there we stood in the office of Senator Boschwitz of Minnesota and then later in the office of Senator Simpson from Wyoming. Boschwitz invited us in on the middle of a staff meeting and for reasons I really don't understand, got out a map to define where we were going next. Maybe he wanted us to leave soon, I'm not sure, but he got the map out and took his time and looked through it and talked with us and met us. We knew about these senators. We'd heard about them, probably heard speeches that they had made, but never in our wildest dreams did we ever think that we'd be standing in their office. But a young man had access to these power brokers, and he brought us face to face with them. This young man was no more powerful than we were. But he had been invested with the unique authority to personally represent people before these legislators. And without that young man's efforts, or someone like him, we would never have met those two senators that day. For different reasons, but in a similar manner, no ancient Israelite met with God apart from the mediating work of a priest. The priesthood of Israel was not a fraternity of well-connected, spiritually superior individuals. But in His electing grace, God chose to invest Aaron and his sons with the authority to represent the Israelites before the God of Israel. This priesthood was commissioned to provide sinners with access to God. And this has been what God has been up to here in the book of Exodus. This has been very clear to us in our studies throughout. But in chapter 25, if you want to turn back there to verse 1 of chapter 25, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. For every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And then in verse 8, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. A sanctuary that I may dwell with them. We remember then as the tabernacle is laid out in chapters 25, 26, and 27 of this, this spatial distance, this tall fence that separates the people of Israel from the presence of God. And then there is the tabernacle itself with its walls and that first veil and then a second veil shielding off the Ark of the Covenant where God's presence would hover above the angel's wings. And the very central point in all of this structure is, is that Ark of the Covenant behind the veil in the most holy place. Chapter 25 and verse 22, God says that there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So in the holiness of God, we see this, this separation of the people away from His presence, but we also see God moving to dwell among His people and to speak with them and meet with them in this tabernacle area. So God reveals His purpose in this way. And then, as we come to chapter 28 this morning through 29, He reveals the mediating work of the priesthood who will be invested with the authority to represent the people of God at the tabernacle. 
And in chapter 28, we consider the priests clothed for their holy service. They are clothed. They are given garments or vestments that will prepare them for this work of coming between the people and God and bridging the gap between them. We have something of a preliminary statement or summary overview in the first five verses of chapter 28, where we read verse 1, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty." You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Who are the priests before this time? Up to this point in time, the patriarchs, the fatherly heads of the clans, were the individuals who served as the priests bringing the people to God. There always was some sense of priesthood. But for now on, Aaron and his sons will serve as a family of mediators between the sinful Israelites and the holy God who dwells among them. As we noted in verse 2 there, there will be holy garments that are made for them. That is, they must dress in a manner that dignifies their service and accentuates their holy duties. The goal, you notice in verse 2 at the end, is interesting. It is for glory and beauty. For glory and for beauty. What they are doing is important, it is wonderful, and God wants them to look the part. For glory and for beauty, you will put on these vestments. Verse 3 through 5, we find here the outfitting of the priests, starting with the ephod, which is a loose sleeveless waist-length garment that was open at the sides. And the ephod is described here then at verse 6. And they shall make the ephod of gold, of blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of fine twined linen, skillfully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its two edges, so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band on it shall be made like it, and be of one piece with it, of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen." You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree, filigree being the the gold that holds up the gem, kind of a decorative, ornate work of a metal. In verse 12, you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders of remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. 
Notice in verse 12, particularly, that Aaron will serve God in the holy place and once a year in the most holy place, and through this service, Israel will meet with God there. In verse 15, we have another piece. We can put that graphic up. These graphics are all a guesswork uh, to some degree. We're not sure precisely. If you look at people who have redone this or tried to, uh, to produce this garb, you'll find that every picture is different because God has not given us enough to exactly copy what is here. But you have something of the idea with this ephod or this cloak that covers the priest. And we move now to the breast piece, which you see right over his chest with the 12 gemstones. Reading then at verse 15, you shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work in the style of the ephod you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen you shall make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row a jacinth an agate and an amethyst, and the fourth row a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, even engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You shall make for the breast piece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breast piece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breast piece. And you shall put the two cords of gold in the two rings at the edges of the breast piece. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings of filigree, and so attach it in front to the shoulder pieces of the ephod. You shall make two rings of gold and put them at the two ends of the breast piece on its inside edge next to the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front to the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod at the seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall bind the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breast piece shall not come loose from the ephod. And Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breast piece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. This nine by nine inch square was folded in half, upward, creating a pouch. We could look at the, well, let's look at the gems that we have queued up here, but uh, the gems on the breast piece, there is some guesswork as to what these actual Hebrew words mean, but obviously very glorious gems and great wealth that went into this. Again, believing that these things came from Egypt as the Israelites uh, were delivered from Egypt. And uh, these stones then put in the breast piece uh, that was over Aaron's chest. If we could go back then to the picture right there. We see here with this breast piece that it is 
folded in half, creating a pouch. It's not visual, very, very visual here, but there was a pouch created by folding this cloth with the open end upward and the folded end downward. There was a pouch that was created in this breast piece. And it has these gems on it representing the people of God. We see that emphasis clearly here in verses 29 and 30, to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And then the end of verse 30, and Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now we have in this description, there are rings at the bottom of this breast piece, there are rings at the top attaching it to the other pieces of the other garments. But again, the point here, in some unique way, with these two stones on the shoulders and these 12 stones with engraved names of the Israelites on the chest, there is a representation of the people to God. They are born on his chest before the Lord. This is a key emphasis throughout this section. And this emphasis continues in verse 30, where we see at the end that Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart, and the reference here to the Urim and the Thummim. The twelve stones engraved with the twelve names is clear. What the Urim and the Thummim is, is not clear at all. We are given no description at all. And apparently the Israelites already knew what this was, the Urim and the Thummim, so there's no necessary description given to them, and perhaps God knows we wouldn't handle the information very well if we knew what they were. All that we know from later Scripture is that the Urim and the Thummim were used in some way to discern the will of God. The Hebrew words Urim and Thummim are obviously just transliterated here for us. These are the plural, the I am of the Hebrew plural. Nobody knows what they really are. But the Hebrew means lights and perfections. And so there is some conjecture as to how these lights may have contributed to the knowledge of God. And I don't want to go into long detail about the many ideas of what they really were. But in some sense, the Urim and Thummim in this pouch at Aaron's stomach were used to discern the will of God. So what is important is representing the people to God, and what is important is the will of God to the people. This is made clear in all of this garb. The knowledge of his will is vital. We come then to the robe in verse 31. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. It's something like a poncho, just a hole in the top, and you pull it over, and it's a long, flowing robe. As you see here depicted on the graphic in the blue color, it will go down past the knees. And on its hem, verse 33, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem, with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he does not die. Now, if I was sitting down with Moses, I'd want to say, could you explain the Urim and the Thummim, and could you explain this last phrase so that he doesn't die? 
How do these gold bells keep him from dying? Now, many people have just kind of skirted around the statement here and said, well, it's so people would, would know where he is and they'll understand where he's ministering. But it seems to be that the connection is made that the gold bells keep him alive. Not simply when they stop, you know he's dead, yank him back out. But the idea is that somehow he must wear these in order to stay alive. I don't know the meaning of it. I can't understand it. I've, not seen, I've seen a lot of ideas, but no one's really swayed my thinking on this is the for sure answer. So we leave that obscure. But in some respect, there, need, there would be a noise that would certainly alert people to his ministry in the holy place with these bells. With all of this is a head plate described in verse 36. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. We see this theme in popular culture sometimes, don't we? Uh, I think, isn't there somewhere I've seen a, a commercial with a guy that's got like a car on his head, right? Have, have you seen that? Or some message that's on someone's forehead that's saying something that they don't realize is there. Well, here, everybody realized it. It's made permanent, this golden band right across his forehead that says, Kadosh, holy, Lamed, to Yahweh, to the Lord, holy to God. That is, this individual has been chosen by God for this distinct ministry of bringing people to the Lord. There was going to be no question to whom he belonged. In verse 39, we have further instructions. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. So a coat, a long white linen outer coat that would be worn just by Aaron, a turban, a cloth head wrapping. You'll notice again in the two pictures, the turban's very different. That's because we don't exactly know what it looked like. The sash or a belt to pull the robes to the body, allowing for work to be done. And then we have the priestly garb for ordinary priests, given in verse 40. And Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps, and you shall make them for glory and beauty. And you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for them and for his offspring after him. If you remember last week, we had that altar with the ramp coming up to it. As these priests would come up on that ramp with these loose flowing robes, there would be a capacity for someone to see up their leg and further perhaps. And so the, their caution is made here of this undergarment as they would go up this ramp and as they would be standing above it 
for decency. Now, this may seem very obvious to us. You don't let someone look up your dress. That seems real clear. That wasn't clear in this day. Letting someone look up your dress was a very small point. Many of the priests in the other religions ministered with nothing on. And in the fertility cults in particular, there was much nakedness and much sexual activity that took place at these places of sacred worship. You remember the sons of Eli, and you remember one of their sins was having sex with women right here at the tabernacle. Why is that? It is because of their depravity, certainly, but it is also because they were simply doing what the world around them did. And so this caution, this decency, this covering of the flesh was very unique for the Israelites. And there was to be honor shown to God in their dress. The dress of the priests, as we come to the close of this chapter, before we move into the next, let's just stop for a moment and say that the dress of the priests set them apart as holy unto the Lord. Is there anybody that couldn't see that? That is very clear, isn't it? They are set aside with this very expensive garb in places even gold wound into the fabric and with these gemstones on them. They are set apart as holy to God in their service as priests. Some take from this an application for our day and say that those who minister the Word of God or minister the sacrament to the church should be like-dressed investments. And so in many churches today, there will be people wearing robes and perhaps even caps of some sort uh, as they mimic this Old Testament provision. We find this among the Roman Catholics, the Orthodox churches, and even many Protestant faiths where individuals will wear some type of vestment or some type of robe to distinguish those who minister in that unique way. Why did Baptists not do this? I don't know all of the reasons and haven't read a whole lot on it. I, I figure part of it is just because they usually don't have as much money. I'm not sure if that's it or not. But uh, I think it really goes back to the history of Baptist churches. And when I speak of Baptist churches, I speak really of all free churches of whatever sort of evangelical stripe, there is not an orientation toward wearing vestments. And a lot of that just goes back to the history. Baptists, Methodists of old in our country, particularly these two, gained people and won people to Christ by going out into the hinterland, into the frontier. And out on the frontier, you really weren't worried about such things. And bringing something along like that might cause some difficulties. And so there just wasn't an orientation that way. But obviously, there's a bigger issue, isn't there? That is, this man who stands before you today is not a distinctive priest between you and God. I don't stand here in robes. Now, I'm not saying that to wear a robe is evil. I'm not going to throw rocks at those who want to wear robes. I, I think anything you wear that's decent, you can wear. But we perhaps have shied away from wearing vestments particularly because there's no priesthood here that's unique. I don't represent you to God in a unique way. There is one who does that, and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Where the theology borrows from the concept that there is an ongoing priesthood, there you will always find vestments. 
But there is no such ongoing priesthood in this day among men, among people. And so we do not wear such robes, in, perhaps for that reason. Again, not saying that it would be evil to do so. But as we finish here in these verses 40 through 43, I want us also to recognize one other thing. Did you see how often there is a reference here to the materials that are used in the priest's garb? This blue and purple and scarlet linen. Remembering back to last week, what bells does that ring? Remember the inner sanctum that covers the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God is wrapped in the highest quality materials. And as you move out from there, the quality of the materials begins to decrease. We move from all gold in the inner sanctum to bases of silver on the outside of the tabernacle to bases of bronze on the fence. And at the entrance to the tabernacle, we have the bronze altar. So we're moving away to less precious metals as we move from the inner sanctum and we move to less precious materials as we move away from that inner sanctum as well. Where will this high priest minister? He will minister in the inner sanctum. And so he, if I can use this phrase, is wrapped in the same material as the inner sanctum is wrapped in. It again points us to the holy and distinct work that these priests will do. They, as Peter Enns writes, embodied the tabernacle. They were chosen to effect the connection between God and His people, and so were holy to the Lord and set aside in this unique way. We look at their garments. We come secondly then to their consecration as priests in chapter 29. In verse 1, Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat, Flour, you shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breast piece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod and you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now preparations for consecration to service are spelled out here. The actual consecration will not take place till chapter 40. But we have three animal sacrifices that are readied here. And as verse 4 indicates, the priests are given this ritual bath symbolizing the removal of uncleanness resulting from humanness and resulting from sin, specifically. Verses 5 through 9, the priests put on proper vestments. And in verse 7, note there that there is an anointing of them. On his head, you will anoint him. In verse 10, the bull is sacrificed as a sin offering. Verse 10, Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting, 
Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger. And the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. The flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. It's vital here to note that the hands of the priest go on the head of this bull. There is an identification here with the bull as symbolic transference of sin from the sinner to the sacrifice. And the altar itself is consecrated with blood. It's opened for business with the same bloody business. Animals start dying. And the blood begins to be shed and spilled. There is fat that is burned as well, which helps the fire continue to burn and adds to the pleasing smell as it ascends to God. There is then a first ram that is sacrificed as a burnt offering. So we have a sin offering. The sin of the priest is dealt with. And now a burnt offering, noting their devotion and dedication and consecration to God. Verse 15, Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay his hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood, and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces, and wash its entrails and its legs, and put them with its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma of a food offering to the Lord. Note again, the hands of the priests are placed on the head of the sacrifice. The entire animal is consumed in the flame as a symbol of complete devotion to God. And then a second ram is offered with unleavened bread. Notice this is a different sacrifice. You shall take the other ram, verse 19, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. Once again, identifying with this victim. And you shall, verse 20, kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of his right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons' garments with him. This ram and the unleavened bread sacrificed with it is called a wave offering. We're moving logically here from a sin offering to cover sin to a burnt offering of consecration and now thirdly to a fellowship offering or a wave offering. The waving here, it's difficult always to know, but apparently is not from side to side, but is more a waving of the sacrifice toward the altar and then taking it back. With the idea that this is being offered to God on the altar, but is being received back as food, as fellowship meal. So with the bread and the portions that are assigned to the priests, there is here a communing in the presence of God. This act symbolizes this communion that is being provided through the tabernacle service. Do you remember what happened with 
Moses and those that went with him up the mountain, Mount Sinai, at the end of that account, what did we read? We read that they ate with God and he didn't kill them. They ate in his presence. Here now is a permanent ritual meal of eating in the presence of God and living to tell about it. By taking the offering and dedicating it to the altar, sacrificing it there, but taking it back, God gives to his people a way of communing with the priest in the presence of God in this fellowship meal, which is described further at verse 22. I should say, first of all, apparently, verse 20, the putting of the blood on the ear was because of the priests heeding the word of God and hearing. We noticed that in an earlier verse of they would be hearing the word of God upon their thumbs, perhaps, to consecrate the doing of God's bidding and service at the tabernacle on their feet as they would walk about their ministry and hopefully lead an exemplary life and upon their clothes distinguishing them as dedicated to the service of God. But in verse 20 then, we, you shall also take the fat from the ram, the fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and the right thigh for it is a ram of ordination and one loaf of bread and one cake of bread made with oil and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. Let me read verse 26. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast and the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed with the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. So this is a permanent offering, fellowship meal in the presence of God. The breast of the sacrifice, the right thigh of the sacrifice would be eaten and all else burned. These portions were permanent gifts to the priest and the fellowship meal in God's presence continued. There is now the consecration of subsequent high priests in verse 29. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place shall wear them seven days. Aaron would not live forever, and so there's provision made for another high priest. Seven days of consecration, probably the idea of perfection from the creative order. And also remember Moses, as he went up on Mount Sinai, waited for the seventh day until God spoke to him. That consecration process will continue when there's a new high priest. Back to the fellowship meal in verse 31. Then you shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his son shall eat the flesh of the ram and its bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration. But an outsider shall not eat of them. What's the point of that? 
They're holy. They belong only to these priests. And if any of the flesh of the ordination of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy. Not even any leftovers. All will be consumed. Thus, verse 35, you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you here in chapter 29. Through seven days shall you ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement, and you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. One reason perhaps that individuals would grab onto the horns of the altar. But there is a seven-day consecration of priest and altar. Verse 38, now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. Now we're not talking about the consecration of the priest, but of every day. One lamb, verse 39, you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth sea, and the fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen, of beaten oil and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. You see the emphasis again. I will meet with you to speak with you there. And, verse 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. That is this whole tabernacle area and this whole service. Indeed, even the priests themselves will be sanctified by the glory of God. I will, verse 44, consecrate the tent of the meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. How are they sanctified? By this offering on the altar, but also by the glory of God. His glory will set them apart. His glory sanctifies the priesthood and the people. Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Why was Israel delivered from Egypt? Not merely because God hates slavery, which He does. But Israel was delivered, verse 46 says, above all that God might dwell among them as a holy people. A distinct nation drawn out from Egypt and set aside uniquely as his own. Not only was there a priesthood in Israel, Israel was itself a nation of priests. Chapter 19, 5 and 6, displaying God's glory to all of the nations. Now let's take a deep breath. That's a lot of text to go through, an unusual amount for us. But I think it's really impossible to go through that without putting it all together. We have the garments of the priests and we have their consecration. That was a lot of text, I know. But going through, I think we understand it and see it. But we have to stop 
for a few moments and say, so what? Why does God take nearly 100 verses to walk us through all of this stuff that really doesn't pertain to us at all? We don't wear vestments. We're not trying to copy what's here. In fact, we couldn't. There's not enough information that's given. Why is it here? We've got to get this from these two chapters, as dry as they might be on the surface for us. It is extremely difficult to meet with God. That is very countercultural in the West, isn't it? It is hard to meet with God. The prevailing religious belief in the West in these days is that it's relatively easy to meet with God. We can kind of run into His presence however we choose and when we choose. But I think all of this thinking is based on a fundamental conviction, and that is this question, why would God not accept me? I can't find any reason why He wouldn't. And so the thought is then that meeting with God is a simple thing. If I want to meet with God, He will surely want to meet with me. And behind all of that is this thought that there is an inherent goodness in us. That we deserve to be in the presence of God. And of course He will welcome us into His presence. But really what I think this is, is not the God of Scripture as much as it is the idolatry of the West. And that is that this is that idolatry. God is easy access. No, He's not. Western Christians are adversely influenced by this philosophy at every turn. God's an easy access God. We need a dose of biblical reality. And I realize it's not texts like this that fill churches up. It's not a very interesting text on its face, and it's a lot of stuff. But God puts these words in His Scriptures for a reason. And one of those reasons is that we would stop and slow down and consider every clasp and every base and every pole and every material and every piece of furniture and all of the spatial issue. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to go right back through it all again for another five chapters later so that we would slow down and say it is not easy access to God. God is highly restricted. And meeting with Him is a difficult problem. The problem is the Bible continues to reveal it, and as God is tangibly revealing it here, physically revealing it here to the Israelites, the problem is sin. The problem is not that God loves isolation, but the problem is that we are sinful. As Romans 3 and verse 10 says, we fall short, hear it, we fall short of the glory of God. The chasm between our sin and a holy God is a major problem. That we learn here as it's developed in Scripture. But secondly, God yearns to dwell among His people. He is not an easy access God, yet He yearns to dwell among His people. Chapter 25 and verse 8. I, that I may dwell in their midst. 
Chapter 25 and verse 22, There I will meet with you, and I will speak with you. 25, 22. Chapter 29 and verse 42, as we ended out this section. End of verse 42, I will meet with you there. And verse 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel. Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel. This is why I brought them out of Egypt. Verse 46, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. The problem is not that God is antisocial. The problem is that he is holy and we are not. And so by nature we need someone to bridge the gap between the holy God and his people And we learn then thirdly that the priesthood of Israel formed a temporary bridge between God and man. Now this is not brought out here very specifically, but the whole thing is laid out here for us and developed in Scripture. The priesthood of Israel is a temporary bridge. It is God's will. We read that earlier in Scripture. This is God's will that this whole situation be set up as it is. However, there is the inherent weakness of sin in the system. The priests are sinners. And so there must be this great effort given to consecration, to the purification through these animal sacrifices on the bronze altar. As the priests walk in in their holy responsibility, they don't walk past that bronze altar. There must be a sacrifice there for them on which they put their hands, identifying their sin with that sacrifice. And so in this whole system, there are two things that reference its incompletion. One is the sin of the priests, and the other is the ongoing sacrifice. How often do you sacrifice? Every day a lamb. Every morning at dawn, every evening at twilight, a lamb for the nation. The sinful people, covered by the sacrifice, day after day after day. The sacrifices are not complete. But Moses, in his writings, has already, and earlier, brought up an individual who is very significant in this whole thing. And that's a man by the name of Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek is the one, the priest and king of righteousness, to whom Abraham gives tithes. Now, in a Semitic way of thinking, who's more important, Abraham or his son Levi? Abraham, the father, is always seen as superior in point of fact to his children. And so when Abraham gives tithes to Melchizedek, who is not part of the Levitical priesthood, the Bible is setting us up to think something weird is going on. Abraham, this father of faith, is offering sacrifices to one who's not a Levitical priest. Chew on that for a while. And the Old Testament authors did, and chewed on it for quite a while. We come to the Psalm 110 of David, where he says, You have made him forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek, pointing to some future son whom he would see, whom he believed would be both prophet, both priest and king. That this one would be through the kingly line of Judah, 
but would as well be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. We say then, fourthly, that the priest after the order of Melchizedek has come, and he provides complete access to God, and that is why we are here today. This priest has arrived. In the first chapter of Matthew, we read that his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. He is God's Messiah, the word meaning anointed one. Mashiach is to anoint. That is this very word that is used here of anointing of the priests. And Jesus, God's son, is Messiah, Mashiach, the anointed one. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and I'd like to read the whole book. I won't, but I'd like to read the whole book. Written to those who understood this whole sacrificial system, the tabernacle, and what it was about, and the priesthood, and how it functioned. They're very, very familiar with all of this ritual, and all of what it meant to be an Israelite. And to these individuals, chapter 7 The author of Hebrews reminds them this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. That is, the Aaronic priesthood has some weaknesses inherent in it, but we have this priest in the likeness of Melchizedek. Verse 16 of Hebrews 7, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. What's that mean? It's not a Levite. But by the power of an indestructible life. He rose from the dead. For it is witnessed of him, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And I think going through chapters 28 and 29 painstakingly brings to our attention the wonder of this statement. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and always lives to make intercession in our place before God. And this priest is someone special. The Levitical priests were no different than the people of Judah, the people of Ephraim, or any other tribe. They were sinners. But this priest is different. He is the Son of God the sinless Son of God, and ultimately not only priest, but also sacrifice. Chapter 10 and verse 11, which was read earlier today, I believe. Yes, chapter 10 and verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. 
For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The young man in D.C. to which I referred earlier was granted access. But I would assume today no longer has that access. Very possibly. But imagine the son of a senator who could grant access at any time, anywhere, that he saw fit. This is the priest that we have. He's the priest who is the son that takes us to his father. And he does so on the force of this final sacrifice for sin. God is just as holy today as he ever was. It is still extremely hard to come into the presence of God in one respect. In this respect, it took the death of Jesus Christ to pave the way in. It's the sacrifice of the Son that permits us to come into the presence of the Father. There is now one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And his ministry for us continues. First of all, his wounds provide the complete and final payment for our sins. Chapter 9, 11 and 12 of Hebrews Verses 23 through 28 as well. All of this system is a copy of the fullness that will come in Christ. If I can just read 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. His wounds plead for us. Put it together with what we've read. Do you remember chapter 28, verses 12, 20? And verses 29 and verse 30. We have there Aaron bearing the names of the Israelites on his heart before God. Did you hear what we sung earlier this morning? My name is graven on his hand. My name is graven on the high priest's hand as he enters into the presence of his father. His sins pleading for me. His position granted to me. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. This is not to be taken lightly. Hebrews 4 and verse 14. We have then this confidence and this promise. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. All of what he's saying is he's, he's passed right into the very holy presence of God, into the inner sanctum with his blood applied to the mercy seat, as it were. And so we should hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He provides access to the throne of God for us who are, in fact, as 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 says, a kingdom of priests. We come now as a kingdom of priests, as a priesthood, into the presence of God. We have direct access through Christ. The bridge, the way in, was very difficult. It was, in fact, the most difficult way, the death of Christ. But now we come in His authority and on the basis of his sacrifice, right into the presence of God. 
We are a kingdom of priests that speaks of evangelism. We are a kingdom of priests to mediate the glory of God to the nations who are to see through us the glories of knowing Christ as Savior. It speaks of sanctification. We are sanctified by His presence. Remember 2943 of Exodus. They will be sanctified by my glory. As a kingdom of priests, we are sanctified by the glory of God. And it is in the contemplation of His glory that we set sin aside and become a pure people. You remember what was said of the disciples? it was recognized that they had been with Jesus. And what did John say of that? We beheld His glory. To behold the glory of Christ, to be with Christ, is sanctifying. Just like the priests of the Old Testament were sanctified by the glory of God at the tabernacle, so we are sanctified, we are made righteous, we are purified by sitting in the presence of the glorious God. And sadly, how often in our sin do we look for reasons not to sit in His glorious presence? But as we do, the light shines on our face and it reflects off. And it speaks not only of evangelism and sanctification, but of service. We as a kingdom of priests have had our thumbs and our toes washed in the blood of Christ and our ears to serve His cause and His purposes while He gives us life. And it finally speaks of edification. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, it ends here in what might seem a twist to us. But at verse 19 of chapter 10, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, 10.21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Now all of that makes perfect sense. In the presence of God we are purified. Let us live as a kingdom of priests before Him. But notice the implication, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. What in the world has that got to do with anything? We're being purified in the presence of the glorious God, and now he jumps over to church life. Well, obviously, they're very intricately connected. For when we are sanctified by the glory of God, our life edifies others. Where there is unedifying speech and action, the reason is not because somebody else is a sinner and got in my way. The reason for unedifying action and word is we aren't sitting in the presence of God. For as we do, we gain a love for His people as He has demonstrated a love for His people. And we begin to shine differently. We have a great high priest over the house of God and the natural consequence is that we would respond by stirring one another up, stirring one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are a kingdom of priests 
coupled together to edify one another to the glory of Christ.